pimping. Hey, it's cash money records, man, a lawless game. Unfucking believable, little Wayne's the president. Fuck him, fuck him, fuck him, even if they celebrate. I know the game is crazy, it's more crazy than it's ever been. I'm married to that crazy bitch, call me Kevin Federline. It's obvious that he'll be cash money. Welcome to this week's episode of Hey, I think we're good here. I'm one of your co-hosts, Jackson Metakekia. And I'm Matt West. And we're here getting to know the sport of volleyball through the life experiences our guests have to share with us. Come take a listen. Today's episode stars Larry Rather, current men's and women's head coach of Fort Valley State University in Georgia. They are a part of the HBCU conference. For those of you that don't know what that means, that means the Historically Black College and or University Conference. On this episode, we talked to Larry about being a black man in a predominantly white sport and a variety of other racial issues that he has felt present, especially now what's happening in today's world. The point of this podcast is to start getting comfortable being uncomfortable when we're talking to people. And it's unfortunate what's happening in the world right now, but I think it's really important that we have somebody that can come on and Give us some insight on what the hell it's like to be on the other side as not a white person and just talk shop and ask some tough questions and get some tough answers back. And I had a great time talking to Larry. He's an open book. He was awesome to talk to. And I know Jackson felt the same way. I hope you guys enjoy this podcast. It's def- it's definitely uncomfortable to listen to at times, but totally worth it. What's up, brother? Not much, man. How are you doing? Good. Where are you right now? I'm in Georgia. Okay. Larry, this is Jackson. Jackson, this is Larry. Well, dude, thanks for coming on the podcast. We appreciate having you on. Yeah. I, hey, I appreciate you guys asking me for one. That was pretty cool. No worries. Like, uh, yeah, I think like the podcast era just completely took off during COVID. Yeah. <laughs> You know what I mean? Because you started years with Motivate, yeah? Yeah. And that's primarily you guys, you just bring on black athletes or black coaches as well, and then they just get to tell their story? Yeah, so, so far what it's been is just seven black collegiate coaches um, talking on issues that have happened to us or things that are going on in the world uh, as a black male or woman, but primarily focusing in men's volleyball. Okay. Yeah. So like, like, yeah. One of our episodes had uh, Sam Schweisky, the Princeton. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And that was kind of like an uncomfortable conversation we did because he's been doing a lot with the activist side for Black Lives, and so we brought him on to kind of ask some questions of what our non-black people can do to help and this, that, and the other. And sure. we went to an episode about what it's like to be mulatto in the game and growing up because you're not black or white to some people. So we get into that. Um, there's a lot of different things we touch on. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, and that's exactly why we want to have you on, because we're like, we got to get some fucking perspective out here. <laughs> and like Jax and I were just talking about a girl that we wanted to bring on that's primarily focused in women's sports and the psychology in women's sports. 
and I just heard a brief snippet of her and she was talking about how like women can't really go to trainers for like their injuries. So like, say you dive and like you hit your boob and you have a male trainer, then like, what are you supposed to do? Like have this guy massage your boob? You can't, right? Or like if you have a groin injury, then that gets pretty dicey with male trainers, you know? So I was like, and that's all stuff that as a male, you're like, well, fuck, I would never think of that, you know? Yeah. And that's like really minute stuff. But um, anyways, going back. So how did you get your hand in volleyball? Was it your dad? Yeah. So my dad played in the military. Um, he grew up with it, but didn't really play in high school or anything like that. Um, but he played for the all army team and all armed force team while he was in Germany. So he played it actually for a professional team in Heidelberg, Germany. Sick. Yeah. And then came home when I was born, they started retiring. Um, and he started coaching a high school out there in Fort Knox. It was like Fort Knox high school. Okay. Uh, and that's where he started coaching. And then we moved back into Illinois and it just took off and kept going. What was the first club you played at? I played for the, the first club I played at was, uh, what was it? LSC. So it was Libertyville sports complex. Okay. Uh, I was like my very first club experience when I was 12. And that's when we met actually was that for the AU, I think it was. Um, oh yeah. When you were just crushing us. <laughs> Larry with his big ass fro he's just bouncing balls on these well, I was like 11 he's just torching balls in front of me I was like this guy's pretty good I guess <laughs> so I started there and then I went into uh, I ended up playing for adversity for the rest of my career okay how was part of Illinois did you grow up in I grew up in like uh, North Chicago Waukegan okay. area it's like the north almost Wisconsin border. So like the Kenosha incident that happened, I lived 20 minutes from it. Or grew up 20 minutes from it. Yeah. So that was very close to home for me. That's like a super big hub of volleyball that is not discussed very often. Is that like little, I guess it's not that little because it's like pretty wide base, but like that region, that like Badger region of volleyball mm -hmm. comes up with some big players. And I didn't know that until Tino and I went out there when we were playing with you guys for nationals. And then all of a sudden we played in this tournament and like, obviously Steve Hunt's not from there, but like Steve Hunt was there for some playing with whatever those one dickheads that like nobody liked. I think Connor, e Connor Eaton was setting. I didn't realize that. And uh, Jamie was on that team and like Kyle Overby and Mike Michelo and like all these guys. And I was just like, who are you guys? <laughs> and then they're like, yeah, we played it like Vassar or whatever. I was like, what's Vassar, man? Like, what are you guys, what are you guys doing out here? They're bought like Noah. Yep. Yeah, that kid's good. I was like, dude, I think you guys just got a way overlooked because you're from Midwest. Yeah, pretty much, 100%. Yeah, so then was adversity – What's volleyball like in Chicago? Is it primarily white? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is it just a money thing? Or is it just like a money – it's just a money thing? A money thing because in the Midwest, uh, I mean, anywhere, club system is all – besides, like, people like your dad and my dad who do it to help kids. Yeah. It's, like, money hungry, and they're just trying to get as many teams as they can, and they have these ridiculous numbers that not everyone can afford. 
How much was adversity when you were playing? Uh, about four grand. Holy shit. <laughs> when you break down the numbers now, that's nothing. It's pretty cheap. I mean, yeah. that, like you're saying, Larry, that's doing it for the kids and just covering costs so it's not, not coming out of your pocket. Yeah, that, it was like four grand, and then you had to buy your hotel room and your travels to a tournament. Yeah. Oh, uh, then that like tax on like another two grand or whatever. Yep. And don't let go to, because we'd go to uh, the summer Anaheim tournament before uh, that. That's another like grand right there. So by all yeah. said and done, you're spending like six to seven. Oh, it's such a messed up system, but like, I don't know what you could do now. Because at this point, inflation is through the roof that, like, it's only going uphill. Yeah, and that's the thing where it's hurting the inner city kids who are trying to get into it, and they can't really get into coaching because it's inner city and there's no money. Yeah, for sure. Um, have you come across any programs that have a good kind of contingency plan for that? Like, if, if there's a group of kids from a certain high school that can't afford it, have you come across any programs that have a good solution for that? I know for us at Vortex, what we would do is make um, not necessarily like a scholarship, but reduce costs based on income in a way. Um, and like maybe just break their payments up to a longer period of time. So it's not like, hey, you need to pay all this money in four months. It's you have the year. We'll break it down into 12 payments, which is probably more doable for most Absolutely. people. Yeah, for sure. Was it nerve? Do you remember your first tryout with all these white kids? Was it nerve wracking? No, because <laughs> Matt, you know me very well. I am a very uh, intense person and I don't shy from anyone. So. No, and you've gotten less intense too since I first met you. <laughs> Dude, when I first, okay, so back to AAUs. One, I said this on our podcast when Jackson and I were like the guests. There were four teams, we finished fourth. Larry's team finished first. Larry had this big ass fro and like his headband, just pulling everything back. And at this time, I didn't know that I would end up living who with the setter on their team, this guy Omar. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up living. Tino and I lived with him in Waukegan for like the month or whatever. And Larry was like, he didn't talk a lot, and I've played with him now, and he still doesn't really talk a lot. And he just would look at people and you're like, get out of this bull's way kind of thing. And he did the same thing as a blocker and a defender, especially when I was like, you know, you're that young and like that inexperienced. You're just like, just get out of the way, you know, like the ball's going to find the ground. It's all right, eventually. So just figure it out. And then we ended up talking after, I don't know why. And he was like the nicest, like just like this, a simpleton. And I was like, this guy is so cool he fucking gets it <laughs> i was like this guy gets it man and uh yeah i don't know why i brought that up but yeah you're very intimidating you're less intimidating now maybe it's because i know you but at that time i was like oh, i'm good get out of this guy's way dude yeah most when they first meet me are intimidated or just like why i'm the guy who will go talk to the senior yeah. as a I'm his equal and not care. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, where did that come from? Is that from Pops? 
Uh, that probably came from pops and just the area I grew up in, like my upbringing, right? I'm coming from a tougher side of town that I, I don't have anything to lose. What am I scared of type thing? But yeah. also I know my abilities and my skill that I'm not going to be scared of you. I know exactly what I bring to the table. Damn, dude. Did that confidence come from your pops too? Where it was just like, you just got to believe in everything that you're doing out here. Yeah, probably seeing it, like seeing him do it and all that, but just getting my ass whooped by him, my brother constantly <laughs> is probably what got me there. Because <laughs> you get beat up so much that you finally become that that guy and you're just like, yep, because my idols growing up were like Kobe, but the main one was Iverson. Like he was a dog. <laughs> he was a straight dog on the court. And so is uh, Dennis Rodman. Like, those are guys that I take my work ethic from. But then you also have Kobe as well. Yeah, they definitely have. I just watched Dennis Rodman's documentary, his 30 for 30. That guy is, um, like, you keep hearing, like, more and more stories about him, which I love now, like, especially through quarantine. He's an animal. He's an animal, but he actually, now that you say that out loud, he's so much like you where he's like so simple minded in the sense where he's like, I just want one thing and I want it to be like, I'm invested and I care. And I just want people to reciprocate that same value that I have. And that's it. And like how I do it is obviously dependent on my personality, but there's like one goal and I hope we all have it in common. Yep. It, it's my biggest thing has always been passion. Like if you've watched me play, I am probably the craziest person on the freaking court, but that's just because I, I care more than anybody else. Like I, when I was coaching kids and I told them, they looked at me like I was crazy. I would fight you. If it came to the third set being, you had to go through a brawl to win the game of a split set. I would fight you to win the game. Like that's how much it meant to me as a player. And not many people have that mindset anymore or yeah, at all. For sure. How did that translate going forward into like Ball State? Go to Muncie, Indiana, and it's like a bunch of white kids. <laughs> a bunch of like privileged white kids. And you're like, I'll fight any of you motherfuckers. Pretty much. Like, how was did it? You know, did it help having Jamie in there too? Oh, that's pretty much the only reason I went there was Jamie and being there. I remember to this day, I was getting recruited by him. Uh, and I texted Jamie, I was like, hey, how do they treat us out there? meaning how they treat black people out there in Indiana at Ball State. It's like, oh, we're good. I'm cool. Don't even worry about it. I was like, okay, I'm going. And then that's my best friend, my brother, I've known since I was in seventh grade. So that was Did you, guys grew, you guys grew up together? Yeah, he grew up 10 minutes down the road from me. Oh, wow. Yeah, so he was just up the street from where I live. Damn. They were cool there, though. I've Yeah, because I, like, what's it called? Jackson sent me this article about Ball State with, like, the off-the-block thing. Mm -hmm. And then I was reading it, and <laughs> the most classic Larry comment. He's like, nobody gave me a hard time. I didn't notice it. <laughs> I mean, that's what it was, though, because so Vinny asked me when he called me about, um, like, an interview for my head coaching job I have out here. And he was like, hey, do you mind if I ask you about if you experienced anything like that there? I was like, on the court and with the team, I can't say I necessarily did. No one said anything around me. But outside of that, at like parties and stuff like that, yeah, there were people who would drop an in-bomb to try to provoke me to fight this, that, and the other. But I knew that because of my upbringing that there are people like that in the world. And I'm not going to let their 
words take me to action, if that makes sense. For sure. How early? Oh, sorry, Jackson, go ahead. It makes complete sense. So for the listeners, there was an article that came out with Off the Block, Vinny Lopes wrote it, uh, who's also a Ball State guy. So it was very close to home for him. Um, And it's just talking about some racial inequality incidents that happened at Ball State. Um, So Larry, you didn't necessarily experience that with your time at Ball State. No. And and like Matt said in the article, there's one sentence really where I'm mentioned and it says they didn't say it around Larry because they were scared. And that just goes into who I am as a person because I'm, I'm aggressive. I'm not afraid to say my, speak my mind or tell you if something's going on and if I need to get physical because you want to get physical, I'm not scared to do that either. So they knew probably don't say this around Larry or where he can hear it because you may not like what follows. So it, it never was anything to me other than, people at frats who would come to my parties at my house and try to start fights and throw bombs and things like that. And I'm just like, that's cool. You can't come to my party. Get the fuck out. Like, bye. Yeah. <laughs> and you credit that to just growing up, being aware of things like that. Yeah. I mean, my dad, both my parents were in the army. My mom and dad were both in the army. So <clears throat> they know the world for what it is and how it is. Uh, my dad grew up on the West side of Chicago. So he definitely knows what it's like to one, grow up in a, a tough area, and two, how we're treated in certain situations. Um, so he always had me with my head on a swivel and just knowing my surroundings. So I, I guess the most simple question I could ask, and I, I think it's important, but what's it like being a black guy in a predominantly white sport? Uh, it can be trying at times, that's for sure. Like you don't have anyone that you can truly relate to or go to and say like, hey, I'm having a tough day because of, this situation or I'm feeling singled out because I really don't do anything you guys are doing. I don't have the same benefits. Um, Some of the biggest ones that'll make you kind of drawn to like a self hate type of situation is I went from a school that wasn't well off my freshman year of high school, which is where I grew up. And then my dad transferred me to another school, which is the complete opposite. Very well, well off kids, Lake Forest, Illinois. Um, and it's where like I had Lovey Smith's son in the class above me. I had um, uh, coach's son played at the school. Like these are wealthy kids who are here and I'm playing on their teams and we go and have like a team get together at somebody's house. And I'm like, holy shit, this is a mansion. <laughs> and I have to go home to my house, which is just an apartment. And that makes you start to question and think about things of who am I, what am I? And then the other side of it being half black and half white where I'm not accepted fully by the black people because I speak too well or I'm not dark enough so I don't really know what they're going through or the white side you're not black enough either or you're not white at all so it's like a lot of um, mental things you have to get used to and just be tougher with which I mean growing up I had allowed me to do that Um, it allowed me to see things kind of without I really know the word I want to use, but um, like prejudged of how I should act in the situation, I guess, um, from anything. So I'm pretty mellowed out. Like Matt said, I've gotten a lot more mellow the older I've gotten (laughs) and I'm only turning 30. So, I mean, I have a tattoo on my inner arm that is a quote, is serenity's prayer, which is God grant me the strength to accept things I cannot change the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference between the two. 
And that was a quote my dad gave me my whole life because I would get frustrated with other people's actions of how they did things. And it wasn't what I thought was how it should be handled, this, that, or the other. And it gets down to, I can't control that. I can control what I do off of what they do, but I need to have the courage to do what I can at the end of the day, which is really why that podcast was started because I can't do much. I'm not the guy who's going to really go out and be in a protest because my growing up and my background, I don't like being in crowded spaces around people where I can't control my environment. So I won't go to a protest, but I will for sure do a podcast, use my voice, my platform, how I have it. You bring up a lot of valuable points there. And I think one of the, one huge one that everybody goes through, doesn't matter if you're black, white, Puerto Rican, Asian, whatever is identity crisis. Mm -hmm. And I think like, especially like, especially in college and like high school, you start tasting it in middle school because you get hormonal and you're like, what the hell do I want with my life? <laughs> but then like, you know, that's just a taste. And then in high school, like socioeconomic status is huge in high school. And I think that goes so far overlooked. And I think that's a big thing of like why cliques exist is I think people think it's like white people got to hang out the like white people, black people got to hang out with the black people. And it ends up being like poor whites hang out with poor whites and rich whites hang out with rich whites, poor black hang out with poor black, but rich black hang out with rich white because it like gives white people like a sense of like, like we're in it, man. Like we're cultured. <laughs> you know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah, And like, other than that, it's just like, and when you're in sport, you don't realize how much of an advantage it is of like meeting all these different people or playing against different people. And like, you're all on the same battleground and you just play, mm -hmm. you know? And it like, there is no color or like, there's no, like, there's nothing, there's no gender. You're just, you're just balling. And, that, and that's what I think yeah. helped me the most, like how I am is who I am is, when I got on the court, I didn't care who you were, what you were. I'm here to ball. Like, yeah, I don't even, I don't even care if I hate you. But we're on the same team together. We're playing. I'm trying to win. I can deal with that later. That's outside the court. Sure. I'm trying to accomplish this one goal of whooping that other team's ass and being the winner. Because <laughs> I <laughs> more than I like winning at the end of the day. For sure. And like, I think another part that you bring up too, that's really, especially I've felt this so much as a professional athlete, because you fart, you start getting like perspective too, once you leave all that stuff behind and like you figure out who your like actual friends are in your life is like just controlling what you can control. And Jax and I have brought this up multiple times on like every podcast we've probably done is like having a sense of identity early and like having goals and like being able to attain those goals or having like that sense of that perspective of like, this is what I want. This is what I'm going to get. It's really hard when you're young. Once you have that perspective, it gets a lot easier as you get older, but being, being thrown into a situation like you were after your freshman year, where you're in like a predominantly black high school and then you get thrown into a predominantly white high school do you think that gave you a lot of perspective early so that when a situation like Ball State came up, you're like, this is easy? Uh, absolutely. And I think that was part of the reason my parents did it, right? They, my brother was a senior when I was a freshman. So he graduated and then we moved so I can go to a different school because they saw him go through four years of what that school was. 
and how he really wasn't that prepared academically for college. So they put me there and knew, okay, one, he's already playing club with a bunch of well-off white kids. So he's getting that experience. Okay. Now we can put him in a higher academic area to where now he's going to get challenged more, but he'll have more support and be able to deal with things there. But my first year there was rough. My first year there was, I was very alone into myself because I was quiet. I just walked around the halls. I knew no one. I'm the black kid that is one of eight in the school. Uh, I had, like, I graduated a class of 420, 450. There were six of us in my graduating class. Ugh. Yeah, so, and one of them is actually still one of my good friends. He lives in Chicago now, back in Chicago, he used to be in Miami. Um, but like that, that was a huge, who do I talk to, right? I get the stereotypes of if I wear a flat bill hat at school, I have to make sure it's straight. When I walk past a white kid who has it backwards, cocked, whatever way, but he's not stopped or said anything to. So I put you in another situation where you're like, all right, am I really that much different? Like, what the hell? Like, why can't I do things this way or that? And me and him would go to school and be like, yo, let's today be dress up. Like, wear a button down, a tie. We're just going to do it just because. And people would look at us like, why are you dressed like that? Why can't I? You don't let me wear what I want to wear any goddamn way. So, hey, I'm going to wear this today. <laughs> yeah. It, there, I think it was very tough, but it also helped me get ready for life in general. For sure. And with a lot of the with a lot of the social things that have come up over the last six months, I've heard uh, mostly black males on TV talk about these are these are conversations that you have with your father and your mom and your uncles and your grandfather, whoever it is, as you're growing up as a black man. Um, what are some of those conversations like, or what are you guys talking about? Cause I'm, I'm a white guy. I hear this from a guy on TV. Just give me some perspective on what those actual conversations are. Uh, the easiest one is just dealing with the police. Um, when you're pulled over, you're to speak very clearly, slowly, not to be intimidating, keep hands with invisible sight. Don't make any fast movements. Um, be extremely polite. Address them as sir or ma'am. Look them in the eyes. Don't have shades on. Just those typical things where a normal person gets pulled over. It's like, oh, hey, here's my license registration. And they're going to talk however they want, where we're having to sit there, be very calm, not know exactly why we got pulled over. And it may escalate even though we did nothing. So that's like the main one you have to, that you're talked about, um, is how to just interact with the police. My mom was telling me that like when she first immigrated, she's Peruvian and she said when she first immigrated, that was one of the hardest things that she had to adapt to because like culturally, there's like such a different infrastructure obviously in the US and there's in Peru. Because in Peru, everybody's like, if you have like slant eyes, everybody calls you like Chino, doesn't matter. Just like, you know, Chinese guys. It's like, hey, Chino, hey, Negro, whatever. If you're black, hey, Negro, what's up? And then she got here and she was like, you can't say anything to anybody and everybody's offended. And my dad was like, yeah, it's just how it is here. And she's like, why does everybody get so offended for everything? If you guys would just relax and if everybody could call everybody everything, there wouldn't be this imbalance. 
but because we created this infrastructure 250 years ago, 300 years ago, we totally fucked ourselves. And now bouncing back is like damn near impossible. I think it gets to the point where you can't get to where everyone can call everyone anything because there's not acceptance of why it started. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like that's that's the main reason. There, there's no acceptance of yeah we fucked up. Like yeah, we fucked up. It happened. This is what it was. Rather than hiding it and whitewashing it, right? And then as a black athlete or a black player or a black coach, you're afraid to get blackballed, so you stay quiet about anything. And now is like the time where you're you can start speaking not your full mind, but speak with a little more truth to what's going on because people are actually listening. Yeah, much respect to black athletes. Well, just like any multicultural athletes at this point for speaking their mind and women for standing up. Mm-hmm. Because I think Jackson and I have talked about this off the air. It's bullshit that the U.S. women's soccer team doesn't make very much money and the men's soccer team makes a lot of money when they just won two World Cups. It should be completely flipped. Literally had this conversation with someone the other day because they were they asked me, "Do I believe the women's national soccer team should get paid as much as the men, if not more?" I, way more. I was like, "Absolutely." They're like, "But they don't make that much with attendance." And this, I was like, "What do we base sports off of? Winning and losing. They yeah. have won everyone's ass. Why are they being paid?" <laughs> yeah, that's what. Off of. For sure, that and like. I couldn't, besides Landon Donovan, who I think retired like 10 years ago, I couldn't name one male soccer player in the U.S. I could name five women's soccer players off the top of my head, and I don't watch women's soccer. So impact has to be something, too. I think think the U.S. sports system is broken completely anyway for the fact of how is a sport in volleyball invented in the United States? more popular overseas than where it was invented. This is a good point. You see what I mean? It, yeah, it's yeah. Originated in the United States, but yet it's more popular overseas and it's number three in the world. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, yeah, I've never thought of it traditionally that way. Right? Football is only big in America because they want to spend money and that just became the big mecca. And then basketball was a quick follow. But guess what? Basketball was invented by a, or volleyball was invented by a basketball coach. Yeah. So I don't. I just, I've, yeah, I've never understood how the AVP isn't more successful when at one point in time you had the greatest player to ever walk the face of the earth in a male in Karch Cry and the greatest player, two of the greatest players to ever walk the face of the earth with Misty May and Carrie Walsh on the tour and they like weren't making money. And they couldn't get publicity. And I was like, they're gods everywhere. Like, who, 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 where did we go wrong here? How is this not selling? How are we not selling girls in bikinis is the real question. <laughs> when it's the, it's the number one most watched sport, aside from like swimming in, the, in gymnastics in the Olympics, is women's beach volleyball. And we can't sell it for like three months out of the year. Well, and that's why, well, AVP was doing well when it first started to make his jump because they were selling the sex sales part of it all with the women. Yeah. 
just it doesn't make a lot of sense when you have so much legacy and so much tradition in a sport and it's like you said it's very u.s driven and we can't we can't sell it it just doesn't make sense i don't know how we don't have a league in this country it, it doesn't make sense either like if i honestly think if the pro world is going to work in the states it has to start with the women and the reason i, I agree 100 percent, i agree it has to be the women for the fact of there are more young women and young girls playing than there are young boys. So you have a bigger market to hit and touch. Now you get the publicity to them. You start raising the money for them. Then you could take the money once you're big enough from the sponsors there to then branch off and start your mid. For sure. I talked to Billy about this and he was like, we're going to start with the men. I was like, that's your biggest, that's going to be your biggest regret down the road is that you didn't start with the women like this AU sports. They're starting with like Jordan Larson and Luca and Carstolo and they went and got Olympians to start their league and everybody knows them. Everybody in Nebraska knows the governor. You know what I mean? So like how easy of a sell is that? You've already got like 40,000 fans just in Nebraska. Yep. You know, and we just had Krista Van Zandt on and I, I don't know how much money you'd have to pay her to get out of retirement because she's pretty happy. But she was such a legend in Seattle. And Jackson, I didn't know this until today when I was doing some recon on her. She threw out the first pitch at a Mariners game. No. When she was in college. That's how legendary she was. That's big time. You know what I mean? So, like, if that, like, you put that girl or, like, Courtney Thompson in the league, it's over. Hopefully. You know, like that's a lot of views that you're going to get just for one person. But anyway, going back to the topic. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's going back to being, you know, black and white sport or just being black, dude. Um, what was it like? How is like, how's coaching or like being perceived in the coaching world as a black coach? Do you feel like you have a fair shake? No. Um, for the simple fact of when you see a black coach, you go, what the fuck do you know about volleyball? That's so super I'm, fair. That is true. That's an immediate thought, right? So if I'm recruiting a yeah. kid, I immediately sell them on, hey, I played at Ball State. I was a starter for four years. I'm, not, I'm the ninth ranked in all-time kills there. I have to give my resume as a player to establish that I know what the hell I'm talking about in this game. Rather than being a white coach who's coming up and starting to recruit you, I could know nothing as a white coach about volleyball, but I can recruit you better than a black coach who knows everything. Yeah, that's fair. And do you think that's just because there's just not a lot? Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's perceived that black people are only doing football and basketball. So when it comes to volleyball, you don't really know. I think you probably know backyard ball, but that's about it. You don't know the fundamentals or the structural side of the game. Yeah, and I mean, I've been guilty of this. I, if I'm playing against a, if, when I was in college or high school, if I'm playing against a black guy, I'm going to serve him because mm -hmm. he can jump high and he can hit hard, but that's it. And I've definitely been proven wrong in those situations many a times, but it, it's a, it's a true stereotype for sure. And it's a, it's a one that where I would play off of it. I would probably shank the first ball to make you think I couldn't pass. And then you would just serve me all day thinking I'm getting lucky while I'm just bouncing. So I, that's 100% the truth. And then the other side of it is 
the black kid that can't pass but can jump high, maybe he's 5'8", 5'9", 5'10", gets thrown in the middle because he's athletic and he's quick. Yeah, he shouldn't be a setter because he don't have no brain. Exactly. Same thing like a black quarterback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? It's the same stereotypes of that you would see in any other sport in a way, but almost overemphasized in volleyball. I played against Chris Austin in junior college, and then he went on to win two natties, which is awesome. I had a tough time playing against him because he would jaw and all that, but that was a a pivotal point in men's volleyball. Mm-hmm. Him as a setter, and he had, he had a great IQ for the game. For not just be, not a black guy, just any player, he had a really good IQ for the game and just winning. Um, I don't think that gets talked about enough. No, I think Chris is a damn good setter. I thought he got underlooked being a third string setter when he got there. But who am I to say how they should coach their team and what they do? Right. I, same thing with our U.S. national team. Right. We have Patch. But you can't tell me there's not any other good black players out there that are worthy enough to be more than a training player. Yeah, true. I, the only two black guys I can think that ever walked through that gym were RJO, mm-hmm. uh, Chris, uh, yeah, Chris Johnson, yeah, KJ, and then that's it. Chris yep. Johnson, and they're both freak athletes who could probably keep up at that level. No, for sure. Like that's the only reason KJ was in there. Mm-hmm. The only reason, and I KJ would tell you that because KJ wasn't like KJ worked his ass off. He wasn't a he wasn't like a super skilled player. He could barely bend his arms and pass when I first met him, and like he could only throw balls when he was at uh, Cal Baptist to one. But he was like tenacious because he's like I don't want to play fucking basketball. Mm-hmm. He's like I don't want to play basketball. I want to play volleyball. I want to be good at this and like, I can jump. I can like, I'm yeah, I'll work hard. And then they were like, all right, you know, like you have all the athletic ability. Let's see if you can put it together. But I feel like in volleyball, I I take that. Yeah. In volleyball, both on the men's and women's side, I see that a lot right now of people are taking a lot more chance on great athletes versus good volleyball players. And on the women's side, it's definitely a lot of black women where they're like, that girl can jump. That girl can hit. Uh, she can't really do anything else, but we'll take the risk, you know? Like, we could teach the rest of it. Because the women's side, women though, you, get, you have the ability to use 12 subs. So I can be outside and never pass in the back row. Yeah, I thought that was crazy that there's – there's called they have six rotation outsides. That's a common term. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's it's yeah. I just I never really thought of the stigma because, but you see it for white guys too. Like you see these like big white guys that like can't do anything. They can't walk and chew gum, but it's like you're six nine. We'll take the risk. Right, but that that's more common than taking the chance and the risk on. The black kid. Uh, Yeah, for sure. I agree. And I bet part of it, too, is – and I've never been in those rooms when you're talking about it, but I bet part of it's socioeconomic. Like, you don't even know about it. We were like, this white kid who plays at Balboa Bay could probably play to go here. Mm -hmm. 
and like the black kid that plays at adversity, we don't know. He's probably on scholarship or something. That that's a guaranteed another stigma that goes with it of, oh, this it's a black kid, he's probably gonna need a lot of money for me to get him to come here rather than, hey, how about I build a relationship with this kid and maybe he's willing to take the sacrifice and take whatever loan it is. But instead of doing that, you just immediately write him off because you're like, oh, he's only gonna be about money rather than building a relationship. For sure. For sure. Um, how do we how do we systemically break that as a volleyball community that's a hard example do you just have to like be the example what do you mean be the example like you just have to be the guy that's like like you just have to lead the charge and be like all right you know i'm gonna go talk to this kid and whatever happens happens like he's just another player um I don't know. I think some coaches in the college realm are trying to uh, better themselves. I mean, we do have the racial equality council that Sam Schweisky started, the Princeton head coach. Um, so they're doing some educational things to get more aware, but I really don't know, honestly. I mean, I know me being here at HBCU, I'm recruiting a lot of black kids. And it's not like everyone's worried, like, oh, are you going to be able to find enough? Yeah, you just have to go look and know you can train people <laughs> you're not really looking you're not going because like we talked about socioeconomical right they're not going to be able to go to these big tournaments like a Balboa Bay tournament or go to an American convention center even though sorry RIP it's no longer yeah location but they may not be able to afford to go to that tournament but they can go to a small AAU tournament or yeah. a small little club tournament that's 10 teams maybe because that's just what they can afford but it's a talent that you're not even going to look at because it's kind of inconvenient for you. It's not where everyone is. So you're going to keep, if you keep recruiting in the same pool or you keep fishing in the same pond, you're going to continue to catch the same fish. For sure. That's, I hear that one loud and clear. I, I coach in women's volleyball and I mean, part of that's just the way things go. You know, you build relationships with certain clubs and certain people and, you hear about it in your network, but you're totally right. I'm missing out on a player that is at a club I've never even heard of, or I don't have the resources to go to those small tournaments as a coach. Um, yeah, we can get better there. Dude, you know what's crazy, though, is, like, all it takes is one player. For example, like, I'm the only kid from Space Needle, right, that, like, got money to go play. But there is another kid, this kid, Tom Logan. He also went to Lewis my same year. He went to Lewis as well. But had I not been looked at, there's no way anybody would have came and looked at Tom Logan, right, or any of those guys. Because all of a sudden, they start looking at our team, and they're like, oh, these guys actually have some, like, potential. Yeah. The center you know? isn't doing everything. Yeah, you know, so, like, when I was, like, a freshman, I started getting recruited. This kid, James Dorr, he ended up going to Limestone on a full ride. But there's no way that kid ends up at Limestone if I didn't go to, like, HP or whatever. And, like, all these – and now, after that, like, and I talked to Larry last JOs, and, like, he'll come look at my team as a professional courtesy. You know what I mean? And, like, coaches will now come to see space only as, like, a professional courtesy. And then they're like, oh, that kid's actually pretty good. And it's like, there's a lot of them. There's just some diamond in the rough 
in club, you know? And like, I mean, that's, that's the old stereotype of Southern California. Like yeah. if you come out of Southern California, you're, people view you in a different oh, way in the volleyball community, but on the volleyball. inside that has changed a lot with Texas being one of the best hubs for volleyball in the country. Um, out in Georgia, A5 puts out players every single year going to top tier yeah. universities to play. Um, but yeah, those to break those stereotypes, it takes time. Mm -hmm. Do you think this conference that it's HBCU, correct? Yep. Do you think this conference is going to shine a lot of light on how many good black athletes people are missing out on? Yes and no, um, because you're still having to build more of us playing. So, like, we're not just recruiting only black kids, right? We're recruiting really all athletes. Yeah. Right? Because HBCU isn't just for black people, right? It's just like a normal university, which most people don't know is a PWI, which is a public or private white institution. So they all have their abbreviations and names that no one knows about, but as an HBCU coach, I have to come and address a kid when I'm recruiting them if they're white and say, hey, my name is Larry Rather. I'm the head coach at Fort Valley State University. We're HBCU. But if I was at Ball State, I'd say, hey, I'm, I'm, my name is Larry Rather. I'm the head coach at Ball State University. I'm not saying the PWI part, so why should I have to say the HBCU part? True. Uh, so we're recruiting all athletes, and I think that'll help by getting more knowledge out to everyone. Um, and it'll give some light to the athletes that are there, but it's going to take time. It's yeah. going to take time. I think people are giving more respect, like you're saying, for people giving the courtesy to you of coming to see your kids play and people making it because of uh, – from Seattle because of you. The same thing for this school. People are going to play us and do things like that because it's me and they know who I am and they know how serious I take this game and what I'm going to bring to this institution when it comes to volleyball. And pardon my ignorance, but when you say HBCU, historically black college or university, what really does that mean? Is that just the way it was founded? Like, give me some insight on that. So that's pretty much HBCU is the universities that black people could only attend back in segregation. Okay. So you had your PWIs, which is your public or private white institution, and then you had your HBCU. And then there's actually a book I'm reading called The Heritage that goes into it to where being a baseball player was the first profession that a black person got looked at to go to a college, a PWI, and thrive rather than a doctor or a lawyer or anything like that. The only way you were going to get to a white institution in college was through playing sports. No shit. No wonder everybody stereotypes now, 70 years later, like integrated in our Maybe. culture of like the only way a black guy can make it is as an athlete. Mm -hmm. No shit. That makes a lot more sense. What, what did you say that book you're reading is? It's called The Heritage. The Heritage? Okay. Yeah. If you have um, Amazon Prime, it's a free audiobook, but the book itself is like 10 bucks. It's on my list. Yeah, it's, it's a really good book. It goes into the um, Colin Kaepernick situation of everything like that. Like the book was written in 2018, but fits perfect for today's age of what's going on with the NBA protesting and using their platform and 
Colin Kaepernick getting blackballed and all that kind of stuff that's going on. So it's definitely a good read. That's so wild to look back. It's crazy to look back and think Colin Kaepernick was just kneeling to like signify that there's police brutality mm -hmm. <laughs> against black men and women. And everybody like took it so far to one side was like, he's not a patriot. He's against the troops. What a piece of shit. It was like, that's not what he's saying at all. Yeah. Well, and in the book, it talks about how, one, he didn't even try to do it out to where everyone noticed. He did it behind his teammates in the back to where no one could really see him just in a silent protest. And people didn't notice until three games in that he was kneeling. Until his third game, they're like, why is he kneeling? And But it goes into the whole shut up and play because – they said in the book where Colin is making millions of dollars. What poverty are you in? You make $20 million. What, what poverty are you talking about? What pr police brutality are you talking about? So it's pretty much you're being paid this money to shut up because you're not in that situation anymore. So what do you have to talk on? And it's that shut up and play at the end yeah. of the day. That's a Fox News life right there, dude. What's it called? Who was it? Yeah, didn't they do that to LeBron? It was like, shut up and play. And then Drew Brees goes out and says his piece about police brutality. And they're like, uh, he's a true American. What a patriot. Yada, yada, yada. I was like, you guys, we can't. You can't go both ways here. Like, it's, if we're on a one-way street, like, one-way street here, there's no bike path. There's no other lane. We're all, we got to all go with this together. Sorry, this is super random, Matt. You might have to do some good editing this episode, but um, I mean, being from the area of Chicago, there are countless talents that have come out of that place that are in pop culture, in politics, in sports, in everything. Just kind of what's the essence of that city? And especially a lot of the people I'm talking about are black guys. Kanye West, Barack Obama, uh, I can go on and on, but yeah, what's so special about Chicago and what breeds that in people? It's a, it's a melting pot for one of culture, right? You have your Greek town, you have your German town, your Polish town, your Chinatown, everyone has a town. Um, the only sad part is when you get to the black culture, it's the ghetto. It's not really a history of a town, um, but you're, you're able to, bring in so much different stuff from so many different people and build off of that. But then at the same time, you're in the ghetto, which is making you tougher than what other people can deal with and go through, right? You deal with more, am I going to eat today? Or maybe you're in a better situation of family to where you don't have to worry about meals that much, but you're worried about, okay, am I going to be able to afford all of rent or just part of rent? Or do I have to pass up on this opportunity to do this so I can make sure I make this happen. Um, so I think a mixture of being in a big melting pot of people, along with just the everyday toughness you build living out in the city. That sounds like a lot of, of what I've seen on documentaries and stuff about New York, especially in the 80s, like when Wu-Tang like Wu came out and things like that, they were in the projects and everything, but it's such a cultural city outside of that, what, three-mile radius or whatever it is? Yeah. Oh, man, we got to make some changes. You think it, You think anything's actually going to change, dude, in all seriousness? 
In what way? Uh, like sport or in? No, like, I I I think volleyball can dramatically change from the men's game because it's such a tight knit group of people, and there's only what like forty programs out there, and I think we could make a serious difference. But I think, but I'm just saying like. In general, do you think we can get like a ma- just a majority of the public? Because co- obviously we don't have a majority because that orange face guy is still, you know, he won the first time, so we don't have a majority. Do we? Do you think a majority will like just sit back and relax and like just look at all the writing on the wall and be like, we got to start giving everybody a fair shake? I think the only way that happens is if people take their pride and they put it in their pocket. And the reason I say that is because to come to this table, you got to come with uh, your feelings in check because there's a lot of shit that's unanswered for that has to be answered for. And until that's done and you can't do that until you put your pride in check, because you're always going to want to argue back like, Oh, but this should have happened and this happened. But what about this? Rather than taking the facts and reading, like you said, the, the writing on the wall, in order to read the writing, you have to open your eyes. I can stand you in front of this wall to read, but if you never open your eyes to actually read it, it doesn't make any sense. For sure. What do you think has to happen? Uh, at what? God, why can't I think of the name? Uh, not royalties. Reparations. Uh, yeah. Reparations. Yeah, reparations for like reparations to happen. Like, what do you think has to go down? Like, obviously, like, not every white guy is going to, like, come together or, like, white person is going to come together in, like, one state and they're going to be like, we're all sorry at the same time. But, like, what would it take for, like, I guess for, like, an apology to just start? Uh, I think the judicial system would have to be the first thing. Um, If you watch on Netflix the 13th, which kind of goes into the 13th Amendment, that will start it. Uh, because back in slavery, they would take the man away from the family. And if you broke that man, you now have that family for generations. So it's the same thing in, okay, I actually made this post about it earlier today where someone made a post of moms, moms for marijuana, moms that smoke weed are better moms to their kids. I saw that shit. but you have a black mom or a black guy who smokes weed. Okay, I'm taking your kids away immediately. There is no question. Child services are coming. Your kids are gone. You're going in jail. It's over and done. And I had kids that when I went to the all white school who would have weed on them. They would have freaking LSD. They would have acid on them. They would take acid in class and be rolling and tripping in their fucking class. But no one would stop and frisk them, but they would frisk and stop a black guy. So until that type of stuff is fixed, that to me is probably the biggest apology of, hey, we messed up, we're revamping this and we're looking into it. Because I told this to my wife today was, how do we, and to my dad, I was like, how do we have updates for our phones that happen when we don't want them? We have updates that come to our computers, we have updates that come to any app we have, but yet we have never updated our judicial system. It's the same it's been and works and is functioning the same it has back since 1800s when slavery was happening. So obviously you don't want slavery to be done because you haven't looked to check your system 
and do your true checks and balances and fix it of how it should be. So until that happens, there is no such thing as an apology because it's just going to keep happening and repeating and repeating. Yeah, then you're apologizing for something that's just going to be continual. Correct. Which is exactly that's like punch you. That's like me punching you in the face. Like, oh, I'm sorry. I don't mean to punch you in the face. <laughs> as I just keep punching you in the face. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's the same thing, right? Yeah, for sure. I have a question for you. Was it annoying, or was it a good feeling when all this, uh, when the Black Lives Matter movement started? And people started reaching out to you and started saying, I'm sorry for everything they did. Was it like, was it annoying or you're like, this means a lot. And like, it kind of, I don't know, maybe it helped. I have no idea. It, I want to say it was annoying. Um, I would say it was draining, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like emotionally. Um, because again, as a black male, you're taught to never smile right you always look hard don't look soft because you look soft you're gonna get picked on don't show you don't cry man up that's not what we do you have to be tough so for someone to call or reach out and say hey i'm sorry about this or i'm sorry if i ever did this to you that makes you go shit like people are starting to understand but at the same time it happens so much that one you're having to relive all the crap you've been through Right. So now all the trauma that I've been through has now come back to me and re-hit me with more trauma. But then at the same time, you're like, okay, that's nice. I appreciate it. Like I understand where you're coming from, but I'm just drained right now. Like emotionally, mentally, physically, just absolutely drained. Do you remember who the first person to reach out was? Uh it would have it would have been Mike. Mike was the first person to reach out to me just because me and him grew so much closer after coaching together that I consider him a very close brother to mine. Um, I actually will be going to his son's third birthday <laughs> in November, like November, oh. November 11th. Yeah. We're driving back to West Virginia for his son's birthday. So like, that's how I consider him. So he's actually the reason the podcast started. The idea started. He reached out to me. He was like, Hey, this is the time for you to take advantage and do this because you're the only person who could get this many people together and make this happen and move. And this is something that I think you could do very well. And I was like, uh, yeah, good joke. And I just reached out to Theo like, yo, I'm thinking about doing this. What are your thoughts? He's like, I'm in. I was like, well, shit, I actually have something here that I need to do. So it was a call and I took and ran with. That's awesome. I like that. That's uh, like everybody just needs a little push sometimes. Mm-hmm. Everybody needs a little push. I was actually now that you said Theo, and then I was just thinking about Josh Walker and Greg Faulkner's on staff too, and I can't remember his name, but he's a coach at NYU. Carl Fritz. Yes, Carl Fritz. God, he's been around forever. Every time I go, I feel like every time I walk into jails, I see. He's the first guy I see. I'm like, you're always on main court just chilling, dude. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think for the small – I mean, I think it's great, obviously, in recent years that we've had more black coaches in volleyball in the men's game. But I really think we could make a difference in the men's just because of how close we are. I think, like, just seeing a guy like Josh and Theo out in public – is great that you're just like, all right, like these guys can do it. We can do it. We can make this happen. 
because they're damn good at what they do. Didn't Josh win like uh, assistant of the year? And yeah. Theo did. Yeah. So one one of the issues we have in men's volleyball is it it's not well publicized, and that's throughout the book. So tell us more about your program, your conference. What are you guys? Who are you guys? How can we follow your program? Yeah, so I'm at Fort Valley State University. Uh, we're in central Georgia, um, in Fort Valley, Georgia. We're about an hour and a half south of Atlanta. Um, we're two hours from Savannah, which is your coast panhandle right there. Um, weather is beautiful. I like Georgia compared to Chicago, that's for sure. <laughs> um, but I mean, we're our program is based off of how I am, right? Your program's always going to be reflected off of the head coach and their personality and who they are. And everyone that knows me knows I'm passionate about this game. I'm passionate about people and I love winning. I hate losing. <laughs> so I'm looking for those same guys who are, like I said earlier in the episode of that are like the Iversons or the Dennis Rodman's, just the dogs. Like I'm looking for guys who are just dogs who want to come in work and punch people in the mouth and see if they're going to react or not. And if they react, cool, we're going to have a dog fight. But if you're not, I'm just going to own you. Um, so I'm looking for those kind of guys in my type of program because that's just who I am, <laughs> right? It's going to be hard for me to get along with a kid who's super passive. I can understand you and I can help coach you. And I would love to have you here still because I have mellowed out more as I get older. But at the end of the day, I'm just looking for somebody who's wanting to come in and get after it. Um, I'm running all of our social media because I'm running our women's program and our men's program here. So I'm taking over the women's and starting up the men's and I'm running our social media accounts. So I'm running our Instagram, which is FVSU underscore volleyball. Um, and now give us all of our updates for our women and men's team, our Twitter account. I'm on here or there just cause I don't really like Twitter. <laughs> I don't even have a personal account for Twitter. So I tweet things here or there or just retweet some stuff. Um, but Hopefully we have some, we have one verbal right now from a kid actually in Cali that's going to come in as a setter that I think is kind of reminds me of Austin in all reality. He has a fro right now too. So it, it really makes me think about Chris and Chakavorty and kind of reminds me of is who he looks up to as a setter. Very IQ knowledge, um, knowledgeable, good hands, a leader on the court. Um, and then we're just trying to get some other kids to come in. But our main thing here is, we're not just trying to make a dynasty with this conference being an HBCU um, because if you win this conference, you'll be able to have a berth in NCAA tournament. So maybe not in the first two years because you'll be in probation, but come year three, if we win our conference, okay, we have a berth and now we're doing different things. So I'm trying to get on top of that immediately and start dominating this conference. Now we're not trying to just build a dynasty. We're trying to build a legacy and the legacy we're trying to build is young black men being able to see more young black men like them playing the game, which is what's going to help, right? I don't know I can do something unless I see somebody who looks like me doing it. So that's having a head black coach. There's not many of us out there. So if I can see a head black coach, then, hey, I know I can be a black man or woman as a head coach. As a player, I see a black player who's an outside who actually can pass balls or can block well or a middle that can do this or that it allows a younger black kid to go, hey, he transplanted from basketball or he transplanted from football or he just started in volleyball and that's all he played and uh, someone else who they can admire. 
and look up to. And that's what we're trying to do and establish here. So for us, it's about family, loyalty, and passion at this program. And that's all we're going to do. Because if you do it passionately, you're going to be successful. If you do it for family, you're going to be successful. And if you're loyal, family comes. So that that's who we are <laughs> and what we're pushing. I'm lucky to have my dad as my assistant coach. So, when so comes, sick. That's awesome. So I get, I get the pleasure of having the man who taught me everything I know as a player and as a man and as a mentor to be my right-hand man to kind of guide me through this experience and be my secret weapon in a way because he should have been coaching in college volleyball long ago and just has it just with the knowledge he has because he wanted to help young inner city kids get out. Um, but I got to steal him away and bring him in. So it's even more of a family for us. There's going to be times where me and him butt heads, but that's less times than not for us because of who we are now and where we're trying to get to. That is so unique and cool. Yeah. I don't know. Have you ever seen that, Matt? <laughs> yeah, Carl and Chris, that's it. Carl and Chris, for sure. That's Down. it, dude. I, I can't think of anybody else. That is so – I've never heard of it for a men's and women's team for a 30-year-old coach. <laughs> that's so cool, Larry. That's so awesome. Um, well, tell me, who do you guys compete against? Because I know the women's game and men's game are way different. Um, you guys are what division? So we're D2, so that's awesome for us on the men's side because we'll play one D1 uh, championship. But our whole conference is actually bringing in six teams. So we'll play the same conference on the men's and women's side. Um, and that's like Clark Atlanta, Benedictine College, uh, or Benedict College, um, Kentucky State, Central State, um, Albany State. Um, trying to think of who else. There's some others. I'm still getting used to this conference <laughs> of who all is there. But on the men's side, the teams that are starting up are us, Kentucky State, Central State, Benedictine, Payne, Morehouse are our six schools. Morehouse is going to have a team? Mm-hmm. That's right. So that's your conference. And then, like you said, in men's volleyball, your preseason could be against Pepperdine or UCLA or Penn State or whoever, kind of those pillars in men's volleyball. Um, and then on the women's side, is it a little more regional? Uh, it kind of will be based off of what I can do. Um, I, it's a lot easier to stay regional for women just because there's more teams, right, compared to the men's side. Um, so for the women, yeah, maybe more regional just to start, but I don't know if they'll stay that way. Uh, and then on the men's side, I'm going to use my name as much as I can to get big teams here. I've already tried to reach out or not try to, I've already reached out to Lloyd Ball to try to get their pro to get like a pro exhibition match here in our arena because the arena we have here is beautiful. I'm going to show you actually, hold on. Love it. So this is what our arena. Oh, no. That's nicer than where I play right now. <laughs> One of our two gyms. We have another auxiliary gym as well that is probably about the size, that can hold up to 1,000, I think. Um, it's about the size of, 
Hell, honestly, Matt, it's maybe about the same size as Pepperdine's gym. I was going to say, is it as big as Firestone, our main gym? (laughs) (laughs) I think it's about the same size, maybe a little bit smaller, uh, but it still has that same dome topping like you guys had. Okay. In our second gym. So the facilities that we have top any D2 school I've ever seen in my life. It actually competes with some mid mid major D ones. D two, dude, that's nicer than Pep. I was gonna say I went, so I went to Mount Olive College, and that I I really liked our gym. I'm not knocking it at all, but I think yours beats the crap out of ours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like that, those are the things like being able to get a pro team for men's volleyball to come into our gym, which could hold a good amount of people, and just get publicity of what real volleyball looks like in Georgia and get big names to come in like, Hey, it's an event. It's free. Come watch whatever have you and just keep doing it that way. And then that allow me to also get bigger colleges to come in too. When are you going to do the exhibition? Uh, I don't know. I'm in talks with them now trying to figure out some dates and figure some things out, but with COVID it's kind of tough. So it's probably gonna have to be after that, but I definitely want to try to get people out here. If it's in May and Maurice and I are free, I'll drag his ass to Georgia. I'm serious. I don't know if you're going to be able to. He's going to have his little one here. Or he probably – she's popping like in a day. Dude, she's popping. He leaves – he leave today? He either leaves today or tomorrow to go back home. Today after their game. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. So, yeah. I think she pops the sixth or the seventh is what he said because she, like, gets the incision. And he's going to be a dad. He's going to be a dad. <laughs> <laughs> That's wild. I completely forgot about that. He's going to be a father. No, I'll drag him. No worries. It's all good. We can bring Danielle and the baby with us. Yeah, because then they can meet our kid, too. Yeah, that'd be so sick. How far along is your wife? Uh, we're just getting into the second trimester, so at month four. That's good. Everybody's still excited. It's like a late March, early April baby, and I'm like, just hold until April 2nd. Give me my birthday. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Love that. Love that. Oh, that's amazing. Oh, man. Well, Larry... I'll let you know about that. Yeah, please do. Yeah, because if it's in like May, June, July, I'm in. Like, I could assemble a crew and get out there too. If, you know what I mean? Like, you can get Ray, Mo, like anybody that's free and it's just like, hey guys, you just, you want to go hang out for like a couple days? And, or like, and ask Bill Lee, he'd for sure do it. For sure. But uh, I'm in. Especially, I'll do anything and play Loy again. <laughs> I'll do anything. I love playing against that guy. He gets, I was, I was like a couple years ago or something. He had already been retired for like five years. And he posted like getting reps. And I was like, dude, you're retired. Why are you setting? <laughs> and he was still setting balls. I was like, God, I love this guy. He's, uh, he's awesome. Matt? Matt who? Loy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's a machine, dude. He's just a bona fide machine, that guy. 
Unbelievable. But Larry, you know, I uh, I think we're good here, man. You shed a lot of light on a lot of shit that I hadn't thought about. I'm glad I could do that for you boys. I mean, that's pretty much all we're doing on the podcast I have too, which is talk about the black experience of men's volleyball and shedding light on not just volleyball, but actual issues in the world. So I'm glad I, I'm using my platform and my voice to help others understand. And that's all I can do. Yeah. Can you mention your podcast again and where we can find it? Yeah. So my podcast is called Motivate, M-O-V-T-I-8. Okay. M O T I V eight. <laughs> I spelled it wrong at first. <laughs> it's motive, motivate uh, volleyball uh, podcast. It can be found on Spotify, iTunes, podcast, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, um, our own webpage, which is Sounder. Um, we have a couple of places, but yeah, you can find it all over. You can follow us on Instagram, which is motivate MVB. Um, and same as our Twitter and Facebook page is Motivate MVB. And you'll be able to find us and follow anything we got coming out. Um, we actually will be doing an episode. You guys will be the first to know. We're doing an episode uh, with my old teammates, Julian and Lim, uh, about the Ball State article that was released. Um, and we'll go into depth a little bit more about that with them, with our group. So that's a little nugget I'll give you guys. <laughs> oh, yeah. Appreciate it. What else knows yet? Man, I'm definitely. Man, thank you so much for your time.